If I could have everybody's attention, please. Uh, we are delighted y'all are here. Welcome, welcome to St. John's. Um, good to see you all out. We are pleased today to welcome uh, back to St. John's the Reverend Tom Pietla. Tom is an old friend of St. John's and has worshiped with us and preached for us on Sundays and taught at these series before. So we are delighted to have him with us. I'm going to turn it over to him, but before we do that, let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we do thank you that you call us into your family. We thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, you call us into true fellowship with one another. At this time, we lift up to you your servant, Tom, and we pray that his words would be your words, and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds uh, to what you have in store for us. Uh, Bless your servant as he teaches and speaks to us. Fill him with your spirit. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's welcome Tom Pietla. Thank you. Thanks for lunch. Um, I don't usually eat lunch. Uh, I don't know why. Lindy says it's a really important meal, and uh, but I don't I don't eat it. Um, so it was it was good to have have lunch. I want to thank Ken and Kay and Luke and Jim and and this church community for the invitation to be here. Um, other than my own church, I, I don't think there's any other church I would rather be than than here. And I'm grateful, as Ken referenced, to uh, the year that I spent with you and and your continued friendship. And I also want to. Uh, since I've been asked to speak about the Incarnation, want to acknowledge that I know of no more determined and effective incarnational uh, pastor than my late jousting friend, Pete Cooper. A couple of, over the uh, Masterworks performance on Sunday, my pastor, Will Malambry, was telling me that he was sitting and there was one of his members kind of in the pew in front of him and then there was uh, a Presbyterian uh, down the pew and after they had gotten done singing one of those rousing uh, Christmas carols as a congregation, the uh, Will's member turned to the Presbyterian uh, person and said, are you all singing Christmas carols in church yet? And happily, she replied, yes, we've been singing them for a couple weeks. And uh, he turned to Will and gave him this menacing uh, uh, glance as to, you know, what gives here? Why can't we sing Christmas carols? Um, So let me uh, uh, begin with a Christmas carol uh, that I think the last time I was here we sang, didn't we? Uh, I remember singing with you. Uh, it's just two verses, and I think the, the carol is, is a good one because it speaks of the topic that I'm going to speak about, uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And if you just take one and pass them around, and uh, that way you can sing with them. And you can also say that you've sung a Christmas carol in Advent. The, uh, the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is filled with words and phrases that speak to the human condition and to our common human yearning, um, and to uh, Emmanuel. 
So we're just going to sing it. I'm going to lead you. We're going to sing the first verse and the fourth verse. And, uh, and I hope you'll be able to catch the reason why we're singing this. Um, and, uh, and I'll make reference to it later. All right, you ready? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Thank you, very good. We'll, uh, we'll refer to that a few times. Um, there's a lot that can be said and has been said about the incarnation. And I want to just kind of speak about what I think are four core truths uh, related to the incarnation. The first one is, what kind of God would do this? Become flesh. The second is, why has God chosen to come and be with us? The third is, how has the church come to understand this mysterious doctrine of the incarnation, fully human, fully divine? How is it that we've come to uh, understand that philosophically? And then the last is, is this just a doctrine that was cooked up by some religious intellectuals 1,700 years ago, uh, people who had nothing better to do, or is this something that really speaks to our Christian journey today? Um, so number one, what kind of God would do this? You know the Bible story, more than 700 years before Jesus was born, Jerusalem was in political turmoil in fact, it was under siege by its enemies. Ahaz was the king of Judah. He was clever enough to become king, but shallow and ineffective as a leader and lacking in the gifts needed for um, military battle. Jerusalem uh, was about to be taken out, and Ahaz was wringing his hands, not knowing what to do or where to turn, talking with his generals, uh, muttering about, the enemy was going to overtake them. And all of a sudden, God caught wind of the situation and sent Isaiah out to have a word with him and to give him a sign 
that would indicate to Ahaz that God was on top of things and would take care of things and that Ahaz should trust him. The text doesn't say really that this brought much comfort to Ahaz, but I imagine what Ahaz has in mind is that God has these armies that are gonna miraculously come from somewhere, these soldiers who are hiding, waiting and hiding, who are gonna drop down, swoop in and help rout the enemy. What is the sign of the victory, the promised victory? He says in Isaiah, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Imagine you're Ahaz. That's all you got, you know? That's all you got. I got people burning down the walls and, and you've got a baby. What good is a baby? I need chariots, warriors, I need swords, and all you have to offer is a pregnant, nameless woman and a baby. And here, 700 years before Jesus, we have a glimpse of the kind of God we have. We have a God who notices what is going on in our lives and in the world. And more than that, we have a God who shows up. It is as if, as if in the middle of this crisis, this battle, Ahaz is conferring with all of his general, generals, thinking hard about what is gonna to happen to him, worrying, all of this, and this big sign comes out and it says, pause, now a word from God. You all have kind of screwed it up. You don't know what you're doing. You're ineffective. Now a word from God. You see, the king of Judah thought that he and his adversaries were the only actors on the stage of history, that everything was up to them, that they could work it out. Well, he, he was wrong. God is active busy. God shows up. Our prayers are answered, but not always in the way we expected them to be answered. This determination of God to be with us in a season of war such as Ahaz's or in our own day is most wonderfully and fully embodied in the birth of Jesus. Isaiah foretold that God would never leave us, that God would be with Ahaz, with Mary and Joseph, and with you and me always. We have a God who shows up. Western society says that everything virtually is up to us. We are smart people. We can figure things out. We can do things. We can get out of messes, out of jams. We've got to make things happen. You must be spiritual. You must be good or generous or benevolent, hardworking, loving, diligent. You must do this since all meaning derives from within us. But Isaiah is talking about something very different, about a better day, a richer hope, when meaning comes not from within ourselves, but from outside of ourselves. 
and it isn't up to each individual. It's all a gift. It's all grace. God with us. God never just leaving us to our own devices. I personally hope in and believe in, and I've even experienced a deeper and mysterious, more mysterious dimension to life. I believe that God loves you and me and God's world enough to get involved. That God lifts a gentle, powerful finger and dips down into our rather limited perspectives and abilities and rationalities and does something good that we could never do on our own. God does things we could never dream of achieving. And so we sang, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. We're not going up there. God is descending to us. Because we could not, in our own misguided efforts, make our way to God, God has come to us. Our God feels for us. Our God cares for us. God acts, reaches, embraces, saves, calls. And we would have known none of that without the person of Jesus. One of the early church fathers, St. John Chrysostom, called the Incarnation, God's glorious condescension. You see, we don't worship principles or abstractions or propositions or an ancient book. We worship the man Jesus. God comes to us in this particular man Jesus who lived a particular life in a particular way and comes to us in our own particular lives. The letter to the Hebrews, written probably 15 or 20 years uh, after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, reminds us that God over history has tried all kinds of stuff to get our attention. He's tried everything, prophets, signs, wonders, everything that God could do, he's tried to get our attention. And then Hebrews says, now in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. In Christ, God made a decision about us. I will be your God and you will be my people. In the, uh, I guess it was the late 80s, mid 80s, seems so long ago, um, there was a very popular song. Uh, it was popular with uh, uh, a lot of artists who sang it. Uh, Bette Midler especially just kind of went crazy with it. And audiences loved it. The name of the song, it was written by Julie Gold, the name of the song was From a Distance. Do you remember From a Distance? Sometimes you still hear it. It's kind of gone out of fashion. The refrain goes, God is watching, God is watching, God is watching us from a distance. Well, that does me no good. <laughs> I don't want God just up there watching me from a distance. It may be a nice sentiment. But it brings me no comfort. Our God is not just out there watching and hoping for the best. Our God took action and came down to one of, as one of us. 
Hebrews 2 reads that in order to remedy the human problem, he had to be made, this being God, had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. That's the kind of God we worship, one who shows up. Now, why has God chosen to come and be with us? Well, I think God with us also means that God is for us. I don't know if you recall or ever heard this story by Philip Yancey. Uh, actually, J.B. Phillips wrote the story, uh, the great Bible translator of another generation. Philip Yancey recounted it in one of his books. He said, this story goes like this. He says, a senior angel is showing a very young angel around the splendors of the universe. They view whirling galaxies and blazing suns and then flit across the infinite distances of space until at last they enter one particular galaxy of 500 billion stars. As the two of them draw near the star which we call our sun and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball. The little angel whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he had seen was unimpressed. And the senior angel pointing with his finger said, I want you to watch that one in particular. And he said, well, it looks rather small and dirty to me. What's so special about that one? And he listened in stunned belief as the senior angel told him that this planet, small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned visited planet. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth-rate, dirty little ball? He asked, why would he do a thing like that? Do you mean to tell me that he stoops so low as to become one of these creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? And the senior angel said, I do. And I don't think he'd like for you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was beyond his comprehension. I recall some years ago visiting an older member in one of my churches one day in mid-January. I was in her living room and I was admiring her new, very large, obviously very expensive TV set. She proudly told me that the TV was a Christmas gift from her son who lived in another state. And I said, well, how thoughtful of your son to give you such a nice, big, beautiful gift like this. And she agreed, uh, but then she said, still, I'd gladly return even so nice a gift as this in exchange for just one day's visit with him.
I haven't seen him for two years. The uh, famed preacher, Barbara Brown Taylor, imagines God saying this through the incarnation. God saying, from now on, you do not have to come where I am, however much you would like to. I am so crazy in love with you that I will come all the way to where you are, to be flesh of your flesh, bone of your bone. I will do it all, and all you have to do is believe me, that I love you the way you are, love you enough to become one of you, and that I love you to death. Why has God chosen to come and to be one of us? God shows us just how far he will go for him to be held in our arms. Number three, how is it that we've come to understand this mystery of the incarnation, God becoming flesh? If you know your New Testaments, and I know you do, it, it's pretty clear that in the New Testament, hardly anyone understands who Jesus really is. They're just kind of befuddled all the time, saying the wrong thing, inappropriate, stupid, uh, just, just not getting it. It's interesting, though, that at the beginning of the story, the empire, the rulers, have a suspicion that there's something about this child that is very dangerous. And from the very beginning, they, they want this child eliminated. But they had no idea, really, what God was up to. And, and the disciples didn't either. And the Gospels, you know, strained to speak of this, this unusual, human, more-than-human reality of Jesus Christ. You have this embarrassing pregnancy, a virgin birth, inexplicable signs and wonders performed, walking on water, healing the sick, all of this stuff happens, and there is no footnote in the Gospels at any of these places that directs you to say, this is the mystery of the incarnation. Let me tell you what it is. It's not there. According to the Bible from the very first, people who encountered Jesus did not say, oh, that Jew from Nazareth is God. They didn't say that. Instead, they said, that's not the way God is supposed to look. Jesus' divine and his divinity was simply not obvious. He failed to measure up to those kinds of expectations. And yet, in a really astonishingly short time, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' once disheartened followers began boldly telling the world that when we encounter Jesus, we encounter God. This Jew from Nazareth is as much of the true and living God as we will ever see. None of them said after the death and resurrection, oh, Jesus, he was a great guy, full of good ideas. He lives on in our memories. They didn't say, yes, we've had a religious experience. Would you like to have a religious experience too? They didn't say any of that. 
What they said was, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Father's eternal word, the only begotten Son of God. In an amazingly short amount of time, they began to look back at the Gospels and identified who Jesus really was. Nevertheless, it, it's not, and it was not, an easy doctrine for rational cause and effect people uh, like us to get our heads around. Very early in the church's life, alternative views emerged of what God becoming flesh meant. Serious views. One was uh, what was called in the fourth century adoptionism, that Jesus was a wonderful, God-filled human being who at his baptism was adopted by the Father. In other words, Jesus is almost like God, but not quite God. It, it, they just couldn't understand that, that God would, would come down in flesh. And, and there was another group, docetists. Docetism comes from the word appearing. Docetists believe that while Christ was fully divine, they believe that, from time to time, he appeared to be human. <laughs> he was fully divine, yeah, we'll give you that. But every now and then, he appeared to be human. And then Arius, in the fourth century, maintained that Christ, the eternal word of God, can't fully be one with God, but must be a creature formed by the Father. Arius stressed Christ's humanity. He's, a, he's one of the highest and best of God's creatures, but he's not God. Most of the ser serious heresies of the church occurred in the third and fourth century as they were trying to figure out just exactly what it means that God became flesh. They're interesting heresies, and every now and then, in fact, frequently I, I run into one of them. They're still around. Um, not too many years ago, on a Good Friday service, um, a church member, very faithful, very intelligent, came up to me and said that while he believed in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it was his opinion and belief that it really wasn't God in Christ who was crucified. It just appeared to be God. <laughs> I, I didn't have the heart on Good Friday to tell him that he was a living, breathing heretic. <laughs> but he was. And you, and, and you see them everywhere, <clears throat> even today. Well, uh, to deal with this, the church finally called an ecumenical council in 325, and, Con and Constantine called it in Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, where they worked out an elegantly philosophical understanding of uh, the doctrine of Jesus Christ as fully human and fully divine. From it came the Nicene Creed, which I suspect you probably recited this past Sunday. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and became truly human. 
In 451, the, the controversies persisted. In 451, uh, at the Council of Chalcedon, some of the same issues were hashed out, and the, the Nicene Creed was affirmed, and, uh, um, uh, and, and now that's where we are. Most uh, major uh, church bodies, Protestant and Catholic, uh, affirm uh, the Nicene Creed. The interesting thing about the Nicene Creed, what I like about the Nicene Creed, is you, as you read, the longest part of it is about Jesus. That's where the, all the controversy was. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? Um, and you can see the fighting behind the words in the Nicene Creed. Eternally begotten of the Father. God from God. True God from true God. I mean, why are they keep hammering that, hammering that? Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. All of that. Well, behind that is the question of who is Jesus and who is God. It's, it's important. These are important things that you state in the creed. Perhaps rather mindlessly recite them every week. Who is Jesus Christ? How does God save us? How do we live? in this fleshy, material world. I said uh, earlier that um, my admiration for Pete Cooper, as living as an incarnational pastor, um, uh, Pete really understood um, this God coming to earth and what that meant in terms of our role uh, here on earth. I remember uh, in a Rotary Club meeting, Florence Rotary Club, uh, somebody said something, and Pete was always kind of jabbing and getting at people. And uh, somebody said something, and uh, I don't know what it was about, but it, 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 it really wasn't appropriate. And Pete just stood up and uh, said, now that's wrong. That's wrong. Uh, you know better than that. I'm ashamed that you would say something like that. And he just castigated the poor man right there in front of all the leaders of Florence. And uh, the poor man just slumped down in his seat, and, uh, Pete, and Pete sat down satisfied that he had once again uh, saved the, the world for us. Um, <laughs> but he, he understood uh, that the incarnation is not just uh, some fancy doctrine that was cooked up by religious clerics and bishops uh, in, in the 5th century and the 4th century, but that it, 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 it pushed us in our fleshly lives and earthly lives here. And, and if you think about the way you worship, um, our most important acts of worship uh, demonstrate the centrality of the incarnation. Baptism, Eucharist, body and blood, preaching, word made flesh, marriage, one flesh, Death and resurrection, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, the resurrection of the body. You can see the craftsmanship as you read and recite the Nicene Creed, and you can see the issues behind the words of the Nicene Creed. Do I understand every word of the Nicene Creed? I, I had a, a teacher in divinity school 
And this poor boy once went up to the teacher. We were doing a theology class, and he, he raised his hand. He said, Professor, uh, I, I don't really understand this creed. I, I don't really understand it. And the, the professor said, well, I don't give a damn. You just keep saying it, and pretty soon it'll come to you. <laughs> Uh, I don't understand it all. Can I explain it to you rationally? No. The great Swiss Reformed Protestant theologian Karl Barth once wrote that the miracle of the birth of Jesus, as confessed in the Creed, is not a cause for intellectual debate, but a summons to reverence and worship. Well, number four, why should we even care? about this mysterious doctrine of the Incarnation. Why, why even bother with it? We've got lots of things on our plate in the church. Um, why take up time with something that was hashed out in the fourth century? God has chosen to locate in this world he has pitched his tent among us, as John so beautifully puts it. And now that God has shown up here in Christ, we should expect to meet God everywhere. The gospel is both an announcement. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And it's also a summons. A friend spent, a friend of mine spent a summer working in a, as a volunteer in a Jesuit center for the homeless. Seven days a week, he said, all day long, they offered free food, medical care, some counseling. And, and it, he said it was the hardest job he ever had. And he said one day at the end of a particularly grueling day of beneficent activity, he and the old uh, Jesuit priest, had come to the time when it was to close down the, the building. And as they did so, they looked out the window, and lo and behold, down the wall came one more old shabby woman with a bag. And my friend said, you know, I'm ashamed of myself now, but I, I said kind of out of exasperation, not another one, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the Jesuit priest muttered, could be, could be. <laughs> and he unlocked the door and he welcomed yet another fellow human being in need who, because of Jesus, is also an instance of incarnation. A friend of mine was um, uh, telling me that, uh, uh, well, I, I better not tell that story. That. <laughs> Um, some years ago in the St. Petersburg Times, the editor of the St. Petersburg Times um, published a paper on Christmas Day that said, in keeping with the spirit of Christmas, only good news will appear on the front page of the paper today. For a full report of all the other news of the day, all the other happenings around the world, please see page 3A. Well, sure enough, on the front page, there's a picture of the Pope doing Mass, 
a story of a family helping another family in need. There's a picture of Santa Claus stretched out on a patio getting sun, some sun. And then the news on the rest, the rest of the news on page 3A. And there, there was a shooting in Chicago. There was a civil war somewhere in Africa and other assorted tragedies around the world that we read in the paper so often. And, and my friend uh, who told me about this noted that he, the editor was well-intentioned, but he missed the point of Christmas. Jesus wasn't born into some fairy tale sentimental world, good news only fantasy world. He was born into this world, a world which was evil and dangerous then just as it is now. And we sang about that, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's to us in our world that he's come. How good of God to love us enough to become one with our very life and to show us God's tender heart by having a heart like ours. How would we have had any clue otherwise? We would have always thought that God was invisible, omnipotent, out there, watching, but I have discovered I don't need God to be everywhere. I need to be God to be here. I don't need an infinite, ineffable God. I need a God with a heart who loves, a God who cares, a God who shows up and abides with us. As we sang, oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Um, one last thing. I, my favorite, I, you know, one of the things about uh, incarnational theology is that you, it, 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 it becomes, uh, our faith is portrayed in art and music and poetry and all of those kind of things. If you've ever seen a Peter Paul Rubens uh, painting, you know how hard he works with flesh. It's, it's, it's just beautiful. There's a, a poem by uh, John Betjeman. He's uh, an Anglican. I think that's right. Um, lived in England. He died in 1972. Was the poet laureate in England uh, for a very long time. And um, he wrote probably the best Christmas poem that, that I've, I've, I've read. It's just called Christmas by John Betjeman. He wrote it in 1954. And it goes like this. The bells of waiting advent ring. The tortoise stove is lit again. And lamp oil light across the night has caught the streaks of winter rain and many a stained glass window sheen from crimson lake to hooker's green. The holly in the windy hedge and round the manor house the yew will soon be stripped to deck the ledge, the altar, font and arch and pew so that the villagers can say, the church looks nice on Christmas Day. Provincial public houses blaze, corporation tram cars clang. On lighted tenements I gaze where paper decorations hang. 
and Bunning in the red town hall says, Merry Christmas to you all. And London shops on Christmas Eve are strung with silver bells and flowers as hurrying clerks the city leave to pigeon-haunted classic towers. And marbled clouds go scudding by the many-steepled London sky. And girls in slacks remember dad, and oatfish louts remember mum, and sleepless children's hearts are glad, and Christmas morning bells say come, even to shining ones who dwell safe in the Dorchester Hotel. And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea became a child on earth for me? And is it true? For if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and inexpensive scent and hideous tie so kindly meant. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Thank you for your time. And Merry Christmas to all of you, if I don't see you.